Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together and to come and study. Study your word, a word that will never change. Lord, a word that will never fail, will never be corrupted, it will never become irrelevant. And Father, we pray this morning that as we study these things, you would speak to our hearts, that Lord, your Holy Spirit would stir us and help us to understand these incredible mysteries and truths that were recorded some 500 years or so before Jesus even came. Speak so clearly of his first coming, his second coming, and all that is in between. We pray, Lord, that you give us spiritual eyes to see these things and that we will be edified and encouraged and strengthened by them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Zechariah. It may be a book that you've read It's probably a book that you've not really studied. Typically, it's one of those that sits toward the end of the Old Testament. And if you've read through the Bible in a year, and I hope you have, if you haven't, I encourage you to do that. But you get to Zechariah, and you kind of go through it, and there's lots of strange ideas and things. And unless you do a diligent study of these things, it's sometimes not easy to find out really what he was referring to and what these things are about. So we're going to dig into this over the coming weeks, and we're going to try and understand what it was that Zechariah was sharing with the people of Israel at that time. Why this message was so important. Why they needed to understand these things. And the hope that comes through the message that he brings. Now, just from a, uh, a timing point of view, we know that Zechariah was written around about 518 BC because we know it's at the same time as Haggai. Um, so both of these prophets, again, uh, preaching to the nation at the same time in history. Uh, it's the second year, we'll see, of King uh, Darius, Darius. Um, and uh, it's during this time that Haggai is raised up, and then also Zechariah. And then shortly after this time, Malachi will step onto the scene too. So after the return from Babylon, we have three prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then we have three historical books, the book of Ezra, and Nehemiah, which details specifically the return of the Jews to the land and the troubles they experienced, and also the book of Esther that we're obviously familiar with as well. So that just gives you kind of an idea of where it fits in kind of history. So again, typically somewhere around about 508, so about 518 BC, so roughly 500 years or so before the time of Jesus. Now, Zechariah is the second of these post-exile prophets um, that we encounter, having already gone through and studied Haggai. He'd returned from the Babylonian captivity as a young man. He'd been born in Babylon. That's what he'd known. That's his, his life up until this point. But born into a Jewish family. Around about 17 years old, most of the commentators think. And yet there was clearly this strong sense that he was part of the family of Abraham. Do you know, it's incredible, and I've been truly blessed this week. Um, as many of you know, I've started a new day job working up in uh, London. It's actually um, uh, in Edgware, and there's a lot of Jews in the area. And it's exciting that every day I'm standing on tubes next to Jews, and I'm so wanting to speak to some of these people, and you know, maybe there'll be an opportunity at some point. But it's so clear that they have this real sense of identity. You know, and it's not just a religion thing. 
There's a mosque right next to the building where we work. And, of course, there are many Muslims. And they, of course, are kind of grouped together. They are, you know, But they're from different cultures, backgrounds, and so on. Yes, they share the same religion. But with the Jews, it's different. It's, it's not just about religion. It's about the fact that they are descendants of Abraham. And for Zechariah coming back into the land, although he's coming to a land that he hadn't been born in, he'd never seen Suddenly we see this young man being called of the Lord to deliver this message. And clearly his heart was stirred by the things he was saying. The the hope that was coming through the messages he was bringing that must have stirred him as much as the people that were hearing these things because he knew the promises that had been given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then reiterated down through the ages and to people like David particularly, the promise of the throne of David being established. And Zechariah is part of this incredible history and lineage of the Jewish people. It's a very Jewish book in that sense. said already he was a contemporary of Haggai. Zerubbabel also was the governor of the land when they came back from the captivity. And then also one of the high priests was there, Joshua. Now a really interesting character. We'll get to see a bit about him as we go through our study. Uh, Not this morning, but in in subsequent weeks. Joshua, as you probably are aware, the name means, or the name is Yeshua, if you were to take the Hebrew of the name. It's the Lord saves. And we're going to see him in type as the Messiah, as Jesus. So he's a real character. We'll see him in the scene here portrayed for us in his role as a high priest, but acting, as it will, the part of the great high priest, the Messiah. Zechariah himself was a Levite and a prophet. He was of the descendants of Aaron, that the, the priestly line, but also given this ministry to prophesy to the nation. Now, Haggai had preached four sermons in four months, and we looked at that in the, the last book that we studied. And then he just kind of seems to disappear from the scene. I'm not suggesting he, he kind of left. He was there, no doubt, the whole time. But he had a very short prophetic ministry, just these four months. And he gets the job done because the, the real message of Haggai is consider your ways. You, you've been spending all your efforts, time and resources building your own houses. Well, look at the Lord's house. And we went through that as a real application to us. What do we do with our time? How much time do we spend building the Lord's house? And how much time do we spend on our own projects and things? You know, we can throw a lot of effort and energy into the things of this world. Gardening, for example. And you get it looking nice. And how long does it last? Not very long. But the things we do for the Lord, they're eternal. But it's two months after Haggai has delivered his first sermon that Zechariah steps onto the scene. It's again, just a young man, and he begins his prophetic ministry. Haggai encouraged the people to physically rebuild, to rebuild the temple. And it's an incredible transformation. The people that have been there for 19 years back in the land, nothing really happened. And yes, they'd been discouragement from the inhabitants of those that have been moved into the land, Tobias, Sambalin, and these other individuals that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
how they tried to stop the building work and so on. And they'd been successful. And for 19 years, nothing had happened. Haggai comes onto the scene, preaches his message, and suddenly people get up and get going. If you remember, we looked at it, it was the 24th day of the ninth month. That day, Haggai uh, really makes a point of it that suddenly the people set to work on this project of rebuilding the temple. And it was the very temple that was then standing when Jesus came. Of course, Herod had added on to the temple and so on. But it's the same temple that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, sat and taught in. It's the same temple that Jesus had gone to to celebrate the, the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Harvest, and then the, the Autumn Feasts as well. And Jesus had gone to this temple. But whereas Haggai encourages them to build physically, to physically rebuild these buildings, Zechariah is encouraging the people to spiritually rebuild. So it's considering where they come from, what their ancestors had done that had led to the captivity in the first place. And Zechariah comes with this message of get your lives right with God. What an important message for us today. Because really behind all of this, the message is get yourselves right with God because Jesus is coming or the Messiah is coming for them. We know, of course, the Messiah is Jesus, Yeshua. And the same message goes out to us now. Get your lives right with God because Messiah is coming. Zechariah gives Israel some of the most amazing prophecies that are found in the Bible. And it's good in a sense that we've had opportunity to study other books first before we come to this, because having gone through books like Revelation, which we did a few years ago, and some of the other prophetic books, when we come to Zechariah, you'll see a lot of things that may go, oh, oh yeah, I recognize that idea from, from here or from there. And it's no surprise, because every book of the Bible draws from something else within the, the Bible itself. The Bible is so interconnected. It's one of the most incredible discoveries you can make that these 66 books written by 40 or so authors over approximately 2,000 years are an integrated message system. A lot of people don't understand that. They don't see, they just see it as just old historical books, religious books. It's not that. It's a message that God has given. You know, Take Revelation, for example, the book of Revelation. In these 404 verses, there's 800 allusions to the Old Testament. To understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament because it's all revealed in the things that were already written. So if you understand the things of the Old Testament, then so much of Revelation and so much of the New Testament will make sense. It's a, it's a real crime that we have churches today. I, I know of a pastor that calls himself a New Testament Christian. What does that mean? I mean, the disciples were New Testament Christians. Yeah, everything they did was based upon the Word of God, which, of course, for them was the Old Testament. We have, of course, the New Testament as well. We have both. And it's all the Word of God. But for the disciples, for Peter and for John, and you know, they all quoted extensively from the, the Jewish, the, the Old Testament as we know it. But these prophecies in Zechariah span history from the time of Israel's return from Babylon to the first advent of Messiah, to the first time Jesus came, and then to the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus. These prophecies are going to cover that entire 
span. And incredibly, a lot of detail of what's in between as well. In fact, we're going to get a great summary of Israel's history and how God looks at the world through the lens of Israel as we look at these prophecies and the things that Zechariah gives us. Chuck Misler said this, he said, This most challenging little book is second only to Isaiah in its distinctiveness and importance as a messianic prophet. That's quite a statement because people recognize Isaiah as a a great prophet. He speaks a lot about the Messiah coming. Zechariah also speaks extensively about the Messiah coming, not just the first time, but the second time. Meryl F. Unger says this, The prophecy of Zechariah is profoundly precious to the Christian because of its unique messianic emphasis and its panoramic unfolding of the events connected with the first and especially the second advent of Christ and the consequent millennial restoration of the nation Israel. This is a book that will utterly destroy the notion that God has finished with Israel. You know, most of the church in this country, in fact, probably worldwide, it's fair to say, has been led to believe that God has finished with Israel, that God has no plan or purpose for them anymore. The view is often called replacement theology. It's kind of a bit of a misnomer, really, because theology is really the study of God. Theos from from the Greek. Just If you study God, you'll know that God is a God that keeps his promises. He delights in keeping his promises, and he's made some very clear, unconditional promises to national Israel. You know, I mentioned earlier seeing some of these Jewish people as I'm uh, walking to the office in the morning. And there was just this young child, probably two, maybe three years old, in a pushchair with his uh, parents, very clearly Jewish family. And I just thought, you know, they're going to be going back to Israel soon. They may not know it yet. But the Lord is going to call all of the Jews back to that land. They're going to go back to their homeland. And there's so much that we'll see as we go through this that will speak of, I believe, people that are alive right now that will be involved in these things being played out. And it makes it really fascinating to consider the days in which we live. It's been said that Zechariah is the most messianic of the minor prophets. As I said already, very much like Isaiah, considered the major. Just to, again, to that classification, minor prophets, it doesn't mean they're any less important. It's simply that they're typically the, the amount of writing was less. Obviously, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are long books, and the minor prophets typically are shorter. Often called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. There's lots of uh, similarities with Revelation, and we'll see those as we go through. And it presents Israel's Messiah in many different ways. The branch who's going to remove iniquity. The stone. You should be familiar with these things. Once again, if you're not already aware, be sensitive to this idea of, of consistency with themes through the Bible. So you'll find that the stone or rock is always applied to the Messiah. 
you know, all the way right from really the book, to, book of Genesis and throughout. You have references to rocks and stones, and it always speaks of Messiah. Of course, you've got Moses in the wilderness, and the rock was struck and water came out. Jesus said, I am the water of life. Later on in their journey, there was another rock, and Moses was commanded to speak to that rock. Actually, he didn't, and because of that, the Lord says, you're not allowed to go into the promised land now. You messed up, because the second time is to speak to this rock, and again, this rock provides for the people. But interestingly, Paul in the New Testament says that that rock was Christ. It was a type of Jesus. It was something that was uh, speaking, it was a model in advance of the person of Jesus. And all the way through, we find this. Jesus uh, spoke of himself as this stone that was rejected by the builders. Again, quoting from Psalms. So you'll find these themes are consistent through the Bible. Again, the throne is mentioned by Zechariah. And it's a a theme, again, that runs throughout the Bible. The temple, Zechariah speaks of the coming king. Daniel refers to the Messiah as the Mashiach, Nagid, the, 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 the prince who is to come and to rule. Not prince as in one who is waiting to become king, but the one who is appointed as king. The shepherd, a term that we're very familiar with called Psalm 23 and many other places in the Old Testament, we have this idea of, of a shepherd. Jesus himself speaks in John's Gospel of himself being a shepherd. But Zechariah is going to give us incredible detail about the triumphal entry, which occurred on the exact day as it had been prophesied through Gabriel and given to Daniel. But that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And Zechariah is going to tell us about that 500 years before it happens. But he's also going to tell us that Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. We'll talk about that when we get there. Zechariah will tell us about the crucifixion. But then he'll also tell us about the second coming, when the Jews will look upon Jesus, whom they pierced. Now, of course, yes, it was the Romans that actually pierced Jesus' hands and feet. But it was at the request of the Jewish leadership at the time. And they whipped the crowd up into that frenzy, and they were crying out, crucify, crucify. Zechariah also focuses on the day of Yahweh, Jehovah, the four letters that we have transliterated for us as Y-H-W-H. It's a Yod, Hey, a Vav, and a Hey in the Hebrew. And the, the name of God is so precious to the Jews that they won't pronounce the full name of God. In fact, it's been forgotten because it's never been pronounced. And so we just have this approximation. If you are reading in the King James, typically you'll find that when we have this word in the Hebrew, then it's translated with a capital L capital O, a capital R, and a capital D, to indicate that it's not just speaking of God in a generic sense or whatever, but specifically of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I Am that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And the day of the Lord, as is translated many times in the Bible, that expression, the day of the Lord, speaks of a specific time that is yet to come. I believe it's on our near horizon. And it speaks of a time that God will bring judgment upon this earth. Boy, is it due. 
Zechariah is going to deal with the reality that Israel will return, but in unbelief. And that's exactly what we see today. Atheism is rife in Israel today. Many Jews will claim to not be religious Jews at all. They don't believe in God. It will speak of the Jews passing through the great tribulation. You know, we are aware and it still pains us to think of what took place during the Holocaust. But typically one in every three Jews was murdered during that period of time. Zechariah will tell us that in the coming Holocaust, what is yet to come, two out of every three Jews will be killed by the armies of this world that will be joined together in this attempt to wipe out Israel. And unless you understand the prophetic significance of these things, so much of what is going on in the world will be confusing. Even what is going on out in Ukraine at the moment will play into this scenario, Russia's involvement out there. And we'll talk about some of those things as we get deeper into this study. But the Jews are about to go through a time that Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble. It will be unlike anything they've endured or experienced before. But through it, they will be saved. They will come to realize, or they will call out to God for deliverance. They will call out to their Messiah. And they will realize that their Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. We're going to see again mentioned the siege of Jerusalem by these Gentile powers. We've talked a lot in recent studies uh, going through the Minor Prophets about the sieges. There were three specific sieges. But this isn't just talking about what had happened. It's talking about what is to come. The Gentile nations of this world will all gang up on Israel. They will march against Israel. The, the, the intent will be to destroy Israel because Satan knows that God has, in a sense, put himself back to himself into a corner and said that the Messiah will not come unless the people of Israel call out for him to return. Well, you can deduce from that that if you can get rid of Israel, then the Messiah can't return. But of course, God will preserve and protect his people and they will call out for the Messiah to come, and he will return. And we've seen that echoed in all of the minor prophets. And he will come, and he will deliver Israel. Zechariah also gives us the only physical description of the Antichrist in Scripture. We'll deal with that when we get there as well, which is interesting. And it also, in chapter 14, seems to suggest the use of nuclear weapons, an atomic bomb. It's quite graphic, the details that are given. Again, we'll deal with that as and when we get there. There's 14 chapters in this book. It's the largest of the Minor Prophets. So it'll take us a few weeks to journey through this. But interestingly, Zechariah is quoted or alluded to 71 times in the New Testament. So we can't just be New Testament Christians because if you're a New Testament Christian, then you've got to embrace the Old Testament because so much of what's in the New Testament is drawn directly from the things in the Old. It's just one book. It's history. It's his story. 
Now, from what we know, Zechariah was a member of what was referred to as the Great Synagogue. Now, this was apparently um, originated by Nehemiah. It composed of about 120 members. This is after the return from Babylon. And Ezra is said to have been the president of this council. And later, this council of 120 members was later succeeded or superseded by the Sanhedrin, which, of course, was the ruling Jewish body made up of 70 leaders of the nation. And, of course, they were the ones that were ruling, effectively, in the time of Jesus. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a member of the Sanhedrin. So was Joseph of Arimathea. So was Nicodemus. So we have a number number in the New Testament that we can link in and understand their involvement and their mindset as a result. We're going to see this exhortation to repentance and obedience. As I said, Haggai focused on the physical rebuilding and so on and was very successful in ministry in doing that. But Zechariah is going to appeal to their hearts, to their relationship with with their God, and he's going to appeal to the mistakes of the past and say, don't make the same mistakes again. Like mistakes are made. We make mistakes But the wise thing is to learn from those and not make the same mistakes again. And that's what Zechariah is really going to labor for us as we see. And then we're going to see these eight visions. Now, some people count them as ten, and that's absolutely fine. Really, it's irrelevant how you break this down. But you can broadly put them under eight different specific kind of categories or headings. We're going to see, and we'll we'll look at this in a second. I'm not going to get very far into this this morning, but just to give you an outline. The man riding on the red horse. And that sets the scene for the rest of the things in the book. And then, we won't get onto this one this morning. Chapter 1, by the way, in the Hebrew, finishes verse 17. Our chapter breaks are slightly different. Don't worry too much about the chapter breaks. They were added later, about the 12th century, by Archbishop Stephen Langton. And, and, and they're, they're useful, they're helpful, but some of them are not always in the best of places. There's a few kind of uh, glaring examples of where probably the chapter break would have been much better here. In the original, it was one text. We just read it as such. But for the Jews, in their version, as it were, um, chapter 1 ends at verse 17. And that's what we'll, we'll look at in a short while. And then the second vision comes. It's the four horns. And some people split these into two separate visions, but then the four craftsmen as well. And then we get a really interesting one. And I enjoy it very much when we get to into chapter 2. And we get the man with the measuring line. And there's some wonderful discoveries there that link right into our days and things that have happened in recent history. Prophetic, prophetic fulfillment. And then we're going to see this example of Joshua the high priest. Again, as I said already, a type of Jesus. And then the golden lampstand and the olive trees. And we'll talk about that. We'll see a lot of links to Revelation in those things. The flying scroll, the woman in the basket, and then the four chariots to conclude these visions. Now, most commentators think that all of these visions occurred in the same night. That's a pretty heavy night if you start to go through this. But Zechariah records all this for us. We're going to see in chapter 6, Joshua crowned as the high priest. And again, a messianic type 
the Jews from Bethel in chapter 7 and 8 kind of breaks from the prophetic to deal with a, a kind of a, an immediate question that was raised that in Babylon they celebrated certain fasts. And the question is, well, should we now continue with those fasts now that we're back in the land? Is it right to do that or not? And Zechariah is going to kind of underpin even their question and say, well, actually, why do you even want to do this? What are your motives? We see that it's like a historical interlude in chapter 7 and 8. And then from chapter 9 through 11, we get what's sometimes referred to as this first oracle or burden of Zechariah, really emphasizing Messiah's first coming, the first advent. Speaking of the Gentile nations that are going to be judged, now those around them at that time, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and ultimately Rome. It will speak of the first coming of Messiah to Zion. The disarmament and universal peace at the second coming of Christ. We see this spanning history. It will speak of the return of captives to Jerusalem from exile. And the staggering thing is we are living in the days that those things are happening. It will speak historically of the triumph of Israel over Greece. There's a lot of problems that occurred for the nation of Israel after the Greek Empire divided into its four separate parts. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get there. And, of course, then the intervention of Jehovah to protect his people, and then the fact that the people will be exhorted to ask for rain, but from God, not from the idols. You know, when we need things, so often we go anywhere but God. When we've exhausted every option, then we go to God. And God's saying, no, come to me first. We can see that God is going to punish the leaders of Judah, but raise up the Messiah, and he's ultimately going to give victory to the people. Israel and Judah are going to be regathered and restored. That work has begun, by the way, that work of restoration. There's an incredible mystery of the Jubilees through history. Okay, The 50th year was said to be a year of Jubilee. When everybody would return, the Jewish is in Leviticus is given to us, that the people would return to their possession, to their land, to that which was once theirs, that they'd lost. And we'll see incredibly how that mystery plays in throughout all history. And in our lifetimes, in recent years, we've seen this being fulfilled. This mystery of the Jubilee, as God is bringing his people back, and there's an incredible cycle of 50 years with staggering events that have taken place on specific days. We'll talk about that, and it'll be fun when we do so. Hopefully it'll be real faith-building and encouraging. But again, the unfaithful rulers are going to be punished. Messiah is ultimately going to rule over the nation as the true shepherd. The Messiah will, of course, first be rejected by his people, and God will deliver them over to the idle shepherd, as he's referred to. Of course, it's a title of Antichrist. Now, there's a a forerunner of that with an individual by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, historically, 167 BC. We'll talk about those things when we get there. So there'll be a bit of history in this, but you'll see how it plays into the days in which we're living. And then the second burden really deals with the the second coming of Jesus and all the things that are going to surround that. The Jerusalem is going to be a burdensome stone. Well, what a prophecy that statement is from chapter 12. 
That is exactly what Jerusalem is today to all the nations of the world. No one knows, no government in the world knows what to do with the problem of Jerusalem. The Jews claim it's theirs, the Arabs claim it's theirs. Of course, Islam tries to lay claim to the Temple Mount. and There's all these conflicts and frictions and so on. The Catholic Church has said it should belong to them. And we'll talk when we get there. What we do find out is though, that the Lord is going to destroy the enemies of Judah. The Jews are going to know God as their strength. And that the victory of Judah over his enemies is going to be clearly laid out for us by Zechariah. But it's going to lead to national mourning as they realize they missed the first coming of the Messiah. That they rejected Jesus. That's exactly what Luke 19 tells us. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. As Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you have known in this thy day. That's not just some casual remark. Jesus was saying, this was the day that you should have known that your Messiah is being presented to you. It's the only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he presented himself to Israel as their king. And some took palm branches and they laid it on the ground and they laid their clothes down and they worshipped him and they sung from Psalm 118, the psalm that was to be sung when the Messiah came. And what did the Jewish leadership do? Well, they said to Jesus, tell your disciples to stop saying these things. And Jesus said, if they stop, that even the stones will cry out. I have at home on my shelf, and some of you may have already seen it, a stone that I brought back from Israel that came from that path down from the Mount of Olives down to where Jesus would have gone in on the day of the triumphal entry. It's one of those stones that didn't get to cry out. You may have heard this week of a family that got in trouble. They were trying to take a shell out of Israel. And I thought, well, shells are quite nice. You find them on the seashore, and, you know, they're very pretty things, and you can have them on, you know... No, it was an unexploded shell that they'd found in the Golan Heights. And they had it in a suitcase, and they were taking it through customs. And apparently it caused a lot of alarm. And you think, well, that doesn't really surprise me. Of course, that um, Ben Gurion Airport, they're pretty hot on those kind of things. Um, and they discovered, as they're going through this uh, scanner, that you've got this unexploded shell. This is an American family, and they wanted to take it back as a souvenir. Um, so... There you go. So mine was just a rock. It was fine. It wasn't anything other than that. And I was okay. And I got out of the country with it. Nobody arrested me. So, But again, Israel rejected their Messiah on that day. And Jesus said that you'll be blinded. We'll see laid out in this book the times of the Gentiles. It's a specific period of history. We'll talk in detail as we go through. But a provision is going to be made for cleansing from sin. Idols and false prophets are going to be banished. The Messiah is going to be slain. Israel will be scattered. We've seen that already in history. We'll talk about that. But a remnant of the nation will return to the Lord. The Gentiles will gather against Jerusalem. All these things we're going to see laid out for us. Uh, but the Lord is going to intervene. There's going to be changes in the weather well, there you go. That, that, that is exactly what we see going on. That's exactly what we hear so much on the news about. But there'll be this river of living water. We'll talk about that. Some fascinating things. And Jesus will reign as king over the land 
of Israel over the whole earth. He will sit on the throne of David. There's going to be geographical changes in the land. And that's fascinating too, and that links in with a number of things we're told in the book of Revelation. And Jerusalem will be inhabited and it will be secure. It's not something that could be said right now. But we're going to see these plagues and panic that's going to affect the Gentiles. But the Gentile survivors will worship at Jerusalem or be on a penalty of this plague if they don't. Merchants will not trade in the house of the Lord. It will be respected. So that brings us to chapter one. And you know what? Because of the time, I'm not going to do it this morning. So it's going to just, just, tell you what, let's just give you the first two verses. And then we'll build it from there. And I just read ahead. Read chapter one, verse one to 17 this week. And then next Sunday, we'll, we'll take it and we'll go through it and we'll look at it. It's a fascinating things. It just tells us in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, so this is this Persian king that's now ruling. We've had Cyrus, who allowed the Jews to return to their land, his son, and then some other imposter on the throne for a while, and Cambyses and so on. And then we eventually get down to 518 BC or 520 BC. Darius becomes king, and it's in the second year of his reign. Now, 518 BC, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu the prophet, saying, the Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. And it's going to build from this point. But I just want to leave you with this, because this sets the scene for the book. There are no meaningless details in the Bible. I hope you're aware of that. Everything here is for a reason and a purpose. And we're told of Zechariah's family history here. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu the prophet. Well, as you know, Jewish names have meanings. Zechariah, his name means whom Yahweh remembers. What a great name. This young man, 17 years old, round about that age at this point, Come back from Babylon. Do you know, if if you just do the maths, in fact, I say, let's let's do the maths. I said he was born in Babylon. If he's about 17 years old, actually he'd have been born in the land, back in Israel, because they were back in the land for 19 years. So I've just, just done that connection myself. So they were 19 years they'd been back in the land by this point. And if he is around about 17 years old, then he would have been born back in Israel. One of possibly, certainly the the first of that new generation born back in the land. That is even more significant. That's exciting. I like that. But his name means whom Yahweh remembers. So this new generation growing up. Son of Berechiah means Yahweh blesses. And certainly his dad would have been part of that generation in Babylon. And to be given a name like Yahweh blesses, speaks of hope that his parents must have had. Zachariah's granddad, grandmother, must have had real hope to call their son Yahweh blesses whilst they're in captivity in a foreign land. It's that acknowledgement that God never gives up on his people. 
and then the son of Idu. Idu, so this is Zechariah's grandfather, means the appointed time. That's just what his name means. So look at those three together. Whom Yahweh blesses, sorry, whom Yahweh remembers, Yahweh blesses at the appointed time. And that is what we're going to see laid out in this book. So read ahead and we'll pick it up from there next Sunday. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity to begin this study. I'll stir our hearts, Lord. Reveal to us more and more from your word. Lord, how incredible to just even now this morning realize that this is a man that was part of a new generation. A generation of people that were looking for your coming, that were getting ready for your appearing, for the appearance of the Messiah. Oh, and Lord, may we learn the lessons from this book that our hearts need to be drawn from those things of this world and set upon you because you are coming. So, Lord, use this book to stir our hearts, to challenge us and to draw us closer. But at the same time this morning, we do pray for your people, Israel, for all the things that we're going to see through this study of all that is yet planned, that is prophesied, that will happen, that will take place, that is already happening because you are a God who delights in keeping your covenants and your promises with your people. And you will rule over the house of Israel, on the throne of David, over the whole earth. Oh Lord, stir our hearts. May we be excited about your word and all that you are doing. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.